Hi, I'm Stuart and welcome to our podcast, The More You Know. Our podcast will be looking into how the manufacture of semiconductors interacts with our everyday life. Thank you for joining us on our podcast. We are aiming to bring you a series of podcasts where I hope, with the help of some of my friends, that we'll be looking to shine an informative light on topics close to our hearts and we hope it will be of interest to you and informative. So today's topic, environmental sustainability. To be honest, we hear that term so much nowadays in the media, in business, it's just everywhere. Everyone is promoting their environmental credentials. But do I, do you really know what it's all about? So to help me, and I hope help you on the environmental journey that we've set off on, I have my friend and colleague for nearly 20 years, Dr. Chris Jones, who through his expertise in all things environment, will be helping me get a better understanding of the big issues around the topics of environmental sustainability. So my title, as Stuart has kindly used it, is a doctor. But I am actually, I've got a PhD in chemistry. I certainly don't have a PhD in climate science. So the more I hear, the more I realise that I don't know. Oh, nice pun. I like that. The more you know. So the reason we're here today is because I want to know more about the environment. And I'm hoping my friend here, Chris, will help us get a better understanding. Because if I get a better understanding, I'm hoping you'll get a better understanding. Well, I'm here to help. Yes, not often. But in this case, I really do hope that you are. Chris. Is it fair to say you are an expert on environmental sustainability? Maybe you can give us an insight into what interests you and what renewable source light, do you see what I did there, you will be able to shine on the topic. I think it's fair to say that every day, in every way, all I learn is how little I know. Uh, There's over 100 100 reports come out every week on the subject of environmental sustainability, and clearly it's certainly not possible to read all 100 reports. So a lot of our stuff is actually we are in the semiconductor industry, and a lot of our expertise is in the semiconductor industry, and everything that is around us nowadays is about has a microchip or a semiconductor in it. But I think the environmental topics, even though we're connected to the semiconductor industry, are relevant to the person in the street. Climate change. What is climate change? Everyone talks about it. I think we could go into a little bit of history here. Back in the early 19th century, uh, a French scientist, uh, Fourier, was aware of changes in temperature and was trying to understand long-term trends in those changes. And he postulated uh, that there's something very strange about our planet Uh, If you look at the amount of energy that the planet receives, then we should be consistently a lot colder than we are. And he came to the conclusion that there must be something in the atmosphere that's essentially acting as a blanket. If we move forward about 30 years, then uh, an American scientist, an amateur scientist, Eunice 
Newton Trot, I think was her name. That's a fabulous name. She uh, took various gases, dry air, uh, water-saturated air and carbon dioxide, put them into containers, and she measured how long uh, those gases retained their heat and came to the conclusion that uh, the carbon dioxide and the water-saturated air held on to heat a lot longer than dry air. The Irish scientist Tyndall had the advantage of incredibly good experimental method and instrumentation. And he was able to show that carbon dioxide held on to energy about a thousand times more effectively than air. And then as we move forward through the 19th century, uh, so uh, in, uh, various instruments uh, became available uh, from uh, another American scientist called Langley, who could measure the radiation absorbed by uh, absorbed by gases, and a, a Swiss scientist who was able to identify levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. All this information then led through to a very famous Swedish scientist called Arrhenius, who was able to, after a, a lot of effort, calculate that should the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere double, he would expect a global warming of about four to six degrees centigrade. Bear in mind, a century later and many, many millions of investment later, uh, our own modern day scientists came pretty much to the same conclusion. That's a lot to take in on that part, and um, but very informative, but my head's starting to nip already. But so if we bring it to modern day, you know, the topic often gets bogged down in the terminology. I want to talk to you about using your expertise about things, certain terminologies and words, just to give me and hopefully the listeners a bit more clarity on terminology. Because I think sometimes we think we know, but maybe we don't. So can we start off with climate change and global warming gases? We've all heard of carbon dioxide and it behaves a bit like a blanket on the planet. So sunlight comes in, uh, is reflected as infrared radiation off the planet and the carbon dioxide traps it in the atmosphere and therefore we get warm. So carbon dioxide's pretty much the major greenhouse gas and then we have gases such as water, uh, methane, nitrous oxide, and the gases that we find in our own industry, the perfluorinated compounds, perfluorocarbons. Carbon dioxide is essentially defined as having a global warming potential of one, methane roughly 30, nitrous oxide roughly 300, and some of the perfluorocarbons go into the thousands. What does that number mean? The global warming potential is essentially the uh, amount of radiation that will be converted to heat over a period of about 100 years. The, the example I gave of the 19th century, actually, they were more concerned about ice ages. Nobody really had any inkling that the world's climate was warming as a result of what we do. Mm -hmm. uh, move forward to the second half of the 20th century. The World Meteorological Organization, uh, I think it was late 50s, set up the world's first continuous carbon dioxide monitoring station in Hawaii. A few years later, uh, concerns started to be expressed that this may be something that we're doing. Uh, and at a, a conference in 1972, 
the world's governments were warned that we should be uh, watching to see if this was man-made. Move forward about 13 years, the VILAC conference uh, warned governments that there may need to be plans put in place in order to monitor uh, the gases in the atmosphere. And it implemented what was at that stage called the AGG. AGG, what's AGG? Here we go with terminology again. AGG. The Atmospheric Gas Group. And uh, the atmospheric gas. <laughs> thank, sounds, thank you for that. That had, sounds perfect, really, right? for this type of thing. It goes on in environmental discussions. This was the precursor of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or to give you some phrasing, the IPCC. The IPCC was formed in 1988. It issued its first report in 1990, and the first report essentially said, look, global warming seems to be happening, but we really don't know whether it's man-made or natural. Uh, move forward about 17 years to its fourth report uh, in about 2007, 2008. And essentially the conclusions now become reasonably firm that this is largely a, a man-made, a man-driven uh, phenomenon. And then move forward uh, another few years, uh, the uh, IPCC fifth report starts giving out carbon budgets uh, so that we can limit the amount of carbon, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Right. So there's loads of words just used there, loads of words, and my head's starting to nip again with all these words. So let's take a step back. So I'm that person standing in the street, and I'm sitting thinking, okay, there's lots of terminology. I now know what the UNIPCC stands for. The term COP26 Let's, let's look at some of the words that we use to support these discussions, because I think we're going to have to talk about them so we could continue this discussion. Global warming gases. What are global warming gases? And I apologise if it's such a simple term, but I think we have to get the basics right. What's a global warming gases? And, so, how, and uh, how does it tie in with climate change? Uh, uh, very nicely tied in with the work that was originated in the 19th century. So uh, uh, the American scientist who identified that carbon dioxide absorbs more uh, sunlight radiation and stays warmer longer than uh, standard air. So a global warming gas is essentially a gas that uh, keeps in energy, infrared energy, that uh, is reflected off the Earth's surface, having taken that energy in from the sun. No, I know you're a scientist, Chris, and I um, really want to try and get the joke out about the uh, laughing gas in this. Could you give us a bit of an explanation about the makeup of global warming gases? Uh, the and let me get my joke in about laughing gas. Right. Okay. So Sir Humphrey Davy uh, used to take laughing gas as a bit of a party trick. No, no, that's an aside. The, <laughs> um, but quite true. Mm. The, right, so the, the, the global warming gas is primarily it's carbon dioxide, mm -hmm. uh, methane, mm -hmm. nitrous oxide, mm -hmm. um, water, uh, then uh, a broad range of other gases. And if we stay within uh, semiconductor industry, a lot of those will be uh, perfluorinated gases, gases containing fluorine and carbon. So how does global warming gases tie into climate change? So if or you, have I asked that question already? It's a complex question. The, uh, I think the, the phrase used by Fourier 
was useful. Uh, imagine these gases act like a blanket. So the heat comes from the sun, the earth gets warm, and the gases essentially trap, they blanket the earth so the, the earth gets warmer than would be expected. And the stronger the effect, uh, the higher the concentration, the longer lived the gases, the, uh, the larger the global warming. On um, the global warming gases, sticking with that, CO2 you mentioned there, you hear terms like CO2, but you also hear terms of like CO2 with a little E on the back, which I assume is equivalent. Oh, What's right. that connection between CO2 and CO2E, and in particular around decarbonisation of the grid? Carbon dioxide's a global warming gas. It's the largest by contribution of the global warming gases in the atmosphere. And currently we're sitting at about 400 ppm. At there ppm? Parts per million, sorry. Parts per million parts of Parts per million, carbon dioxide. And that's significant why? Uh, that is significant because the higher the concentration, the greater the... Uh, potential warming. I'm starting to think I'm probably less educated than hopefully our listeners, but um, tie in CO2, if that's the biggest one, why bother about methane? Why bother about N2O? Why bother about PFCs? Even I'm at it now. So the carbon dioxide equivalent, uh, if we imagine that carbon dioxide uh, is the de facto standard and has a global warming potential of one, Mm -hmm. then any gas that absorbs infrared radiation and converts that infrared radiation to heat is a global warming gas. Mm -hmm. uh, and by ratio, is it long-lived? Does it absorb more uh, infrared radiation? Uh, then you ratio everything against carbon dioxide. Uh, so a gas that is a stronger uh, absorber of infrared, longer-lived, uh, will have a uh, carbon, a global warming potential of greater than one. Ah, right. So if carbon dioxide has a global warming potential of one, then gases such as uh, methane have global warming potential of 28. Right, uh, that's quite significant more. So yes. is it true, I'm going to jump in here on methane because it's a fascinating one because for me, if we all become vegetarians and don't eat, cows, for example, would that help us on global warming gas? Uh, yes. Uh, the, uh, there is a significant release of methane uh, from the agricultural industry, uh, but not just from animals belching methane. Uh, there are also influences from crops, uh, from forestry. There are many natural processes that generate methane. So I'm just going to come in here. I do believe it's got nothing to do with cows passing wind, isn't it? It's the way they chew their food is the biggest when it comes to animals, especially cows, releasing methane. And it's got nothing to do about their their ability to pass wind. Am I correct? Uh, it comes out of their mouth. You can, of course, modify the diet to reduce the amount of methane released. Ah, right. Okay. So we could maybe not have to be uh, vegetarians then if we could breed cows that um, don't belch methane so much when they're eating. I think a reduction in the amount of meat, uh, red meat, would probably be a good thing. Controversial. You've probably just got all our meat-eating friends just switching off. So I would say we are okay still with eating meat. I personally think Edwards should endorse vegetarianism. Mm, yes, well, anyway, moving on to, I'm interested then in two of, if it's 28 for methane, what's it for? You're looking at me again like this thing. Look, I, I'm the person who's supposed to be I learning. Think, I, think it's two, I, th I, think, I think it's 280 
For N2O. Yes. So what about you mentioned, and I'm not going to try and pronounce the word again, but PFCs, which stood for? Perfluorocarbons. So Perfluorocompounds. They don't, do they naturally exist? Yes. And so, and we're, we're going to be a bit kind of um, uh, cliquey here. Industries, PFCs, why are they so important to things like the semiconductor industry? And... I'm going to go out on a limb here, the aluminium industry, for example, or, um, um, you know, why is PFCs so prevalent? And I think I read somewhere it's just 5% of all the global warming gases. Uh, so the uh, you do get some PFCs generated naturally, uh, carbon tetrafluorides generated out of volcanoes, for example. Mm. Um, but it's uh, a very low contribution to the amount of that particular compound in the atmosphere. Um, the semiconductor industry uses uh, perfluorocompounds in many ways, but uh, one of the uh, critical ways is uh, for etch gases, for processing semiconductor wafers. Any industry that uh, uses uh, fluorine compounds will often find a way to generate PFCs. And I've just clicked here about the number. So you went, well, let's go back to carbon dioxide of one. Mm -hmm. When you said methane had 28, that number is, it will last 28 times longer than carbon dioxide if it's released into the air? No. No. No, it's essentially a reflection of the amount of energy that it absorbs and converts to heat uh, and a reflection of its lifetime. But that global warming potential is over 100 years. So it's a G, global warming potential GWP 100. Uh, so um, the gases such as the PFC, so carbon tetrafluoride, has a global warming potential of over 6,000. So if I was to create methane now, mm -hmm. how long would it stay in the atmosphere? I haven't the slightest clue. Ah, Interesting. I heard once PFCs could last, once you create them, could last for over 50,000 years. Uh, I think the jury's out on that one. Um, that number, that, that number, that number's bandied around. It's uh, the lifetime of uh, lifetime of CF4 about fifty thousand. CF4 uh, is carbon tetrafluoride. I think we'll avoid this one because I'm going to end up going into SF6 sulfur hexafluoride. Being oh, just he's off on his scientist world. Let's and pull it back there. Let's yes, get let's back to the. Let's so, get back to the person in the street again. Yes. Right, we've talked about CO2 and we've yes. talked about CO2 equivalent, and yes. I think. I think um, answers on a postcard if you want any more questions to Dr. Chris Jones. But let's move on to environmental sustainability, Chris. Yes. It's everywhere now, don't you agree? Yes, it's, it's everywhere. Well, we've got the media, it's in business, it's just everywhere. It's in our pension plans. Our pension plans? Ah, uh, th yes. That's kind of given away to the listener uh, our age, really, if we're talking about pension plans. But I like to think pension plans comes with experience. What do you think? Our pension plans will include a degree of uh, sustainability, sustainable investments. Sustainable investments. It's kind of the problem we've got with environmental sustainability, isn't it? There's, there's just buzzwords. All environmental, around. social... Yeah, well, and we could go on, isn't it? We could almost play environmental buzzword bingo we if could. we get to that. Um, but you know what? I just I just keep coming to the end of it. Sometimes I walk away and I think I'm an expert. Sometimes um, I walk away going, I'm not an expert. 
So I really want to ask you a lot of questions to, so when I'm standing in the pub in a couple of weeks time, I could talk about environmental sustainability a little bit more informed. Every day, there are probably hundreds of reports released on the subject of environmental sustainability. And something I learned today was that one month ago, one of the estimates for how much it's going to cost us to get to net zero, which we'll discuss later on, is $150 trillion. Today, I learned that that figure's been revised to $250 trillion. To get us to net zero, that's a hundred times the GDP of the UK. Do you not think there's a there's a problem though with all the terminology that we're going to use here? It's going to put people off. It's not not hopefully not put them off our podcast, but it's going to put us off having good conversations in the pub about environmental sustainability because the pub is where we're going to ultimately influence government policy and even industry direction. Well, I was rather hoping it was going to be a coffee shop or a cake shop rather than the pub. After all, the uh, brewery industry is a bit of a habit of emitting carbon dioxide. Oh, I like that one. See, already we are informing you about carbon dioxide, but just in case all the pub landlords of uh, around the world are now going, oh, you're killing off my business, let's not bring that one up. Right, so I think we've done enough on CO2 and CO2 equivalent and the global warming gases. One thing I really struggle with sometimes is the aspect of global warming gas uh, and global warming temperatures, but this thing about 1.5 degrees. You hear that banded around a lot, but could you shine a little bit of a light on the 1.5 degrees and why it's so important? So the uh, original mention of 1.5 degrees C or less than 2 degrees C came out of... uh, one of the cops at Cancun in 2010, I think. Can we just clear something up now? What yes. is COP? Oh, mean? sorry. Uh, conference of parties. So we've had so, 26 of them. Maybe that's yes, a story yes, for another day. Yes, we have. The first yeah. one was in Berlin. Uh-huh. And at Berlin. Was that COP1? COP1. Wow. And COP1 decided that we should be looking at global warming effects that take place but after the year 1990, I think. Uh, COP3. I don't want to go through all the COPs, no, no, but let's no, get no. to COP15. I, th- I think it's important to understand that it's been a journey. The challenge with COP is that uh, you can come out with some industrial coalition agreements uh, and some political agreements, but the ultimate declaration has to be agreed by all parties. So it's either all or none. So, mm. uh, and the journey's been quite slow because of that, because clearly uh, certain interests, whether they are uh, industrial or political or uh, regional geopolitical interests, have come to the fore and have tended to result in many of the COP meetings essentially not coming to a, a formal conclusion. So with COP1, we end up with... Uh, an agreement that we should be looking at the effect of uh, climate change after 2000. By COP3, we've got the Kyoto Protocol. The EU came in asking for a reduction of greenhouse gases of 15%. But at the end of the meeting, 
the agreement ended up being a reduction of 5% by somewhere between 2008 and 2012. Um, the next... Uh, Are next, you going to go through every one of these COPs? No. The next one, uh, the next one uh, for me of interest is the one at Cancun where we, end, we start now defining the 1.5 degree C and 2 degree C. And that'll be on the back end of some of the IPCC reports. So uh, we end up with uh, less than two degrees C. Ideally, we should have an aspiration for one and a half. But that was less there than was two no degrees C. What what less than two degrees C? Uh, global warming versus pre-industrial period. So that must mean going back to your global warming gases reducing the amount that we produce. Well, in that, um, uh, n- n- no. That is the amount that we release into the atmosphere, not necessarily how much we produce. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe that's for another podcast another time. So I think we're clear on 1.5 degrees C. I want to move on to a subject now that I... Oh, I'm interested in. I think I think we're not. Oh, we've not. Well, let's go back to one point five degrees then. So, so we've got Cancun, where essentially you, we've now got the formulation of one and a half and two. Uh, Paris, two thousand fifteen, COP twenty one, is where that comes into play, uh, where it's formally agreed that we should be hitting uh, less than two degrees C and ideally have an aspiration of one and a half. And that's the formulation for the subsequent COPs, that we're trying to hit uh, those particular global warming temperatures in order to limit uh, the damage that we're causing to our planet through global warming. Thanks for that, Chris. I think I've got a better understanding of the 1.5 degrees C now. So I've often heard, and I'm, uh, and you know, especially in our industry, you know, but... Outside of our industry, we've seen a lot of the ways people talking about it's another buzzword and another uh, environmental sustainability. Um, decarbonisation, decarbonisation of the grid and global warming gases, how are, they, how are they all linked? Actually, this is about emissions. In other words, the quantity of global warming gases we emit into the atmosphere. Dropping back to that Arrhenia study back at the end of the 19th century. You do like these 19th century uh, scientists, don't you? What about some modern ones? But the reason why I like it is because, one, they had very little access to the information that we now have access to. And uh, they didn't know the detailed atmospheric chemistry that we now know. And yet they were able to calculate things that... uh, took us another century to to confirm. Uh, So Arrhenia said double the amount of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. You'll get somewhere between four and six degrees C temperature rise. Uh, The uh, assessment report, the fifth assessment report from the IPCC started putting carbon budgets onto uh, our emissions. And we're sitting... In 2020, uh, they essentially said uh, for a one and a half degree C uh, global warming uh, temperature rise, we've got another 400 gigatons of CO2 equivalent that we can release. We, we release annually somewhere between 40 and 50 gigatons per year. 
Wow. So we are going to have to start reducing the amount of emissions in order to keep these temperatures below the one and a half degree C so rise. Decarbonisation of the grid is that is is that one way of of at least helping to reduce these emissions, particularly yeah. for CO2. The energy sector probably accounts for more than seventy percent. So that's a yes then. Uh, yes, and we'll have to get that. <laughs> we'll have to get that figure checked. Uh, but uh, the energy sector contributes probably more than seventy six percent, so seventy five percent. So really, it's about l lowering power consumption is but that that will also mean uh, is that the consumer will have to to it's, it's a real uh, it's a real difficult no. decarbonization is a real challenge to me and trying to understand it no it, again let's go back it's about lowering the emissions uh, lowering the use will lower the emissions uh, if I turned around to you and said, you can only have your electricity on uh, 12 hours a day, you might be a little bit uh, disappointed. So there are various tracks to lowering the emissions, uh, some of which involve uh, essentially going over to uh, low carbon sources for electricity, whether that is solar, nuclear, uh, wind. wind. <laughs> <laughs> yes, solar, nuclear, wind, or uh, hydro, or geothermal. Um, other options would include the capture of capture of carbon dioxide produced by the uh, burning of fossil fuels during the generation of electricity, and storing those permanently in geological features. I hear a lot of people in the media and businesses talking about things, oh, we've got a carbon net zero target or we're going to be carbon neutral by 2030. Could you tell me the difference between net zero and carbon net zero and why is it important? Essentially, folks refer to net zero as where the emissions of greenhouse gases are balanced by their removal. So in other words, the rate at which we release to the atmosphere is balanced by their removal rate. Oh, right. That makes sense. So if you're talking about carbon net zero, you're talking about your carbon emissions balancing them. But we should be talking about carbon dioxide equivalent, all greenhouse gases, not just carbon dioxide. And so where does carbon neutral mean then? So carbon neutral, oh, that's a good one. Carbon neutral is pretty much the same thing. So why two terms? Uh, because I just want to confuse you. I mean, that's a good question, actually. Uh, carbon neutral, where many people will refer to carbon anything as uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, it's important that we actually target all greenhouse gases, not just carbon dioxide. So carbon neutral, uh, carbon net zero, net zero, or refer to some form of balance between emissions and removals. Now, those removals can be in the form of natural sinks or man-made sinks. So you're saying neutral and carbon neutral and carbon net zero is basically saying the same thing, balancing your emissions to... With your capture. Yes. Yes. Okay. Essentially, uh, the... So in other words, the concentration in the atmosphere doesn't change. Oh, now this is what gets me worried because, and I kind of pondered before I didn't say something that upsets a lot of people, but isn't there a danger of all these terminology just bringing um, greenwashing? And I'll give you an example of that. The, the greenwashing that I always worry about um, is 
oh, when people announce, oh, um, I'm very green because all my electricity is um, f- from renewables. And that's what worries me about decarbonisation. Are you really getting a, a renewable electricity all the time? And the evidence suggests, no, you're not. It could be a little bit of it. It could be some from your wind turbines, but predominantly it might be from gas. It might be from the biomass. It might be from the nuclear. And, and I'm just thinking, you know, when you when you say, let's say your big factory or you're sitting at home with your renewables, is in industry we say we've got renewable energy and we... How does that work? How does how could a company say we use 100% renewables? So the uh, each of the national grids has a mixture of energy generation methods. Uh, in the UK, we have uh, wind, solar, gas, nuclear, and we can bring online coal and some other methods. So on average, uh, we will produce... I don't really want to go into the point two two four. Gram, kilograms of CO2 per kilowatt hour. Me neither. Let's not Okay, do that so one. let's not go there. So so there's an average car, what's called a carbon intensity. Uh, in other words, uh, grams of carbon dioxide per unit of power. And different regions have different values. Uh, those that rely more on coal will have a higher, higher carbon intensity. Those that have uh, largely nuclear will have a very much lower carbon intensity. So there's an average grid number. If you uh, buy uh, renewable energy certificates or renewable energy of guaranteed origin Is this where we start to get into greenwashing now? No, I... No, rich I, countries? No. Uh, no, I don't think so. The, uh, the action of companies and individuals paying for renewable electricity will essentially or paying to say they use renewable electricity, will essentially help fund further renewable electricity research and development and implementation. So you're really going to need a good, strong governance around certification. If you buy renewables plus the certificate, governance is going to be key. Well, and that's the reason why these certificates uh, these certificates are tightly governed. So how do we move forward? Well, firstly, um, individuals individual companies, individual countries, we can't do this by ourselves. It has to be a global effort. Uh, Carbon dioxide and these greenhouse gases uh, are produced globally and don't know borders, so they will float around globally. It's important for us all to remember that this is going to be a team effort. But as an individual... I can start asking the companies from which I buy electricity, from which I buy my computers, from which I buy my cars. I can ask them to tell me in a clear, unambiguous and transparent and preferably accredited way their carbon footprint. And mm. if uh, if if my comp- if the company from which I buy my laptop uh, can't give me that, then I'll go and buy my laptop from somebody else. That would be true for electricity. That would be true for any item. So we should have a very clear understanding of the environmental impact of the goods that we use. Would it be a correct assumption to say one way would be for governments to look to decarbonize their own national grids? Governments need to provide their national de- defined contributions. 
These NDCs, as they're called, are essentially the plans that governments are to provide to the United Nations that demonstrate how they are going to reduce the amount of greenhouse gas emissions from power sector, from industry, from transport, from agriculture, how those emissions are going to be reduced in line with the one and a half degrees C and two degrees C targets. At COP26, I think the phrase was used, one and a half degrees C is alive, but barely alive. Uh, the governments were sent away and were told, please come back to COP27 and please come back with much more aggressive NDCs in order to provide us with a means of ensuring that we simply don't breach those temperature targets. The decarbonisation of the energy sector is one. We live in, many of us live in uh, democracies. Uh, I, for one, have already asked my MP uh, his views on global warming and how he will influence government in decarbonisation of our grid, like decarbonisation of our uh, transport sector. Is one of the ways, forgetting about the personal side of it, and I'm mm -hmm. probably talking more about industry now, and um, I'm just thinking when it comes to the measurements, I've heard the term science-based target initiatives so science-based references the one and a half degree C and two degree C limits for global mm. warming. Uh, there are organizations uh, that will ask you for a plan. And the important point is a plan, uh, a plan against which you will be judged, a plan which will be reviewed uh, as to how you're getting on uh, as, as time progresses. Uh, that plan needs to include the activities that you will undertake to reduce, as a company, your uh, carbon emissions. Uh, so as a company, uh, Edwards has signed up to uh, those science-based targets with the aim of uh, reducing our own emissions by about 46% by 2030. Uh, our own emissions and the emissions of our goods in the field by about 26%. But the important point is that those are defined plans. We know how we're going to get there. That has been validated by an independent third party organization. It should be stressed, however, that we shouldn't just be talking about carbon dioxide. We should be talking about all greenhouse gases. It's why the EU has issued a target of climate neutral by 2050. Oh, here we go again. Climate neutral? Yes. Uh, we just go over carbon neutral and now in carbon net zero, and now you're saying climate neutral. This comes back to greenwashing every it's, time. Every time it gets difficult, somebody changes the terminology. It's it's not greenwashing. It's trying to encompass everything. Hmm. I think, but there, when you try to encompass everything, it seems to me that we found something really difficult, and now what happens is that we found something really difficult. People are not keen to do it, so let's give it another name. Um, possibly. So what uh, is climate neutral? All greenhouse gases. Whereas China has committed to be carbon neutral by 2060 without saying whether that carbon is carbon dioxide or all greenhouse gases. If, so it's not CO2 equivalent, it's just CO2. CO2. The burning of fossil fuels, CO2. 
So PFC's got C in it. So why isn't that taken as a carbon? Uh, because the carbon content of uh, the PFC is very low by comparison to its global warming potential. Ah, right. Okay. So although it's important, it's yes. not as important as getting rid of carbon yes. dioxide or even if methane. I if I burn a PFC then the emissions in terms of its global warming is substantially reduced. So, and finally, all this stuff that we've been talking about, and I, I, it's been really good, I've really enjoyed, I think I've, I've learned a lot more on here, is that it seems to be, and you could disagree, which I'm sure you will, it's the, the part of, it's about really working together, influencing governments and having a standardised measurement. Absolutely. Um, it's uh, for our children and our children's children. Oh, I love that last line, don't you? I think, um, well, thanks, Chris. We've given you a little bit more of an insight into the topic of environmental sustainability. Our next podcast will be about these measurements and science-based targets and the challenges that we face. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you.